be seated. Thank you. Good to have you back, Brittany. Thanks for helping us lead, help, helping Trevor lead this morning. Good morning. My name is Ernie Wagner. I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn. If it happens to be your first time with us, welcome. Uh, hopefully you received a gift. If you didn't, that's on us. Um, but get one on the way out. Um, we are in a, a series walking through the Gospel of Matthew, and so we're going to be in Matthew 27 in just a little bit. Over this week and next week, we're going to be focusing specifically on the cross of Jesus. But before we get there, uh, I have something I'm going to invite a friend up to share for a minute. Uh, we, we every week walk through uh, what's called New City Catechism. Catechisms are questions and answers. They're uh, ways that we can help understand uh, what we believe about uh, God and who he sent to redeem us. And so we've been walking through that every week for the last, now this will be the 26th week we've been walking through it. And so there's 52 weeks in the catechism. So we're right in the middle and the design, the heart, the hope is that parents, we can have conversations around uh, these, these topics that we can have dialogues and, and we want to help resource you as we kind of move closer and closer towards opening up some of our elementary class uh, classrooms. And so uh, question 26 is going to be up here and I will ask the question and then we'll um, recite it. This is a simple one, guys. You know, sometimes it's like, oh no, I'm gonna have to read a paragraph and I'm nervous. And I get nervous when I see the long ones too. So you're, you're not the only one. Sometimes I don't see these until live with you. And so I look, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm probably gonna stumble. And so we can feel that together. But this one is simple. So uh, thanks be to God. Uh, question, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read the question. It's actually longer than the answer. So th- this is a good one for you. Just exhale, week after daylight savings, feeling good. Um, question, number 26. Uh, what else does Christ's death redeem? Answer, every part of fallen creation. Last week we, we talked about his redemption bringing forth forgiveness and the fullness of forgiveness. And so that was more of a personal component of the gospel. And then this one uh, communicates more of a cosmic focus. Again, we'll ask the question, what else does Christ's death redeem? Answer, every part of fallen creation So this is not just a personal trust in Jesus for your sin, just kind of a microcosm that God is going to redeem everything. And this is a a great reminder when we think about areas of pain in this world, uh, we can remember that Jesus is going to restore everything. Great conversation for your kiddos this week. Michaela Brown, you want to come on up? Michaela's going to be leading us in our missions moment uh, this week. And I won't share anything else because I don't want to steal your thunder. Give it up for Michaela. Good morning. Wow, we have a. It's on. It yes. should be. It should. Be. It's not on. No, I can talk. Well, for for the uh, for the our our uh, online viewers, we want to make sure that our online community is hearing. What should we do, Jared? It's on. Oh, is it on now? Yes, thank you nice. for your participation. Um, awesome. I'm really excited to be here with you guys this morning. Like Ernie said, my name's Michaela. I am part of the Global Missions team here at Sojourn. So once a month, one of the members of the Global Mission teams just leads a missions moment spotlight. So here at Sojourn, we have a real heart and passion for the Great Commission, and the Great Commission includes very specifically unreached people groups around the world. And we want to be intentional in our community about praying over unreached people groups and praying over how we specifically can be involved in taking the hope of Jesus and the love of Jesus to unreached people groups. So things might show up on the screen. 
they might not show up on the screen. Um, if not, I have fun facts. Wonderful, they are there. So yes, we want to pray for a small minority of believers who are in that location, pray for the people group specifically, and then pray over how Sojourn can be involved. So in a few minutes, we're going to do that collectively, out loud, uncomfortable. If that makes you uncomfortable, that's great. We like to push outside of our comfort zone. So today we are focusing on the people group of Somali, um, the Somali people group. So there are some facts about the Somali people group on the screen, and you can see a picture of the Somali people group as well. For those of you who are terrible at geography, like myself, um, there are about 12 million Somali people in Somalia, which is near the Horn of Africa, near Ethiopia and Kenya. If that doesn't help, then we'll just pull up a map and you guys can look and see where Somalia is. Um, but that's kind of where they are. 99.7% of the population is Muslim, and the small percent of Christian populations are pretty much despised by their Somali neighbors. They are outcast in that community. They're primarily made up of nomadic shepherds who live in established farming communities and face a lot of challenges such as drought, famine, and war against the Somali clans. So we're going to just keep those things in mind as we pray specifically over this people group. So how we're going to do this, if you are in a group of whoever you came with, I kind of want you guys to turn inward to the people that you came with because those are people you're comfortable breathing around and those things. Um, and we're going to take kind of in rotation. We're going to pray first that the gospel would spread among the Somali people. And these points are going to be on the screen. And I'm going to be praying aloud as well to kind of guide us through when um, we'll shift to the next point. I would love if you're a family to, to take turns, you know, have dad lead the first prayer, mom lead the second prayer, and go back and forth leading aloud so that this is a communal thing that you guys are really doing together. Um, I know that the Holy Spirit was very present during worship this morning, so thank you guys for bringing that. And I want us to, to press in to his spirit and press into that this morning as we're praying over the Somali people. So we'll start with a prayer that the gospel would spread. Um, the second prayer will be that the for the Somali believers who are there and praying for their empowerment and their favor with their neighbors. And then lastly, we'll close by praying over us and our community and how we can be involved in reaching the Somali people group. So if you will gather together with your families um, and join me in prayer. Father, we lift up the Somali people group to you, Lord. We know that your love is what brings freedom, Jesus, that your name brings freedom, and we want them to have access to that. God, we know that your heart is for every nation, every tribe, every tongue, Lord, and we just pray that in your power, the name of Jesus would reach the Somali people group. God, we pray for their freedom. We pray that they would learn and know that they actually have direct access to the one true God. Father, that humans don't have to stand as intercessors for them, Lord, even though we stand interceding for them today, Father, praying that they would have that direct connection and relationship with you, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fall on their people, Lord, that you would send believers to go speak and bring your name to their people. Lord, but we know that you don't have to use us. So God, in your divine power, Jesus, we pray that your name would be known among the Somali people group. Um, Father, that they would become a great body of believers that spread your gospel and your truth and your freedom um, throughout the, the country of Somalia and even further around the Horn of Africa. Father, we trust you for these things and we believe you for these things because we know it's in your heart and we know it is your will.
Jesus, now we just lift up those who are believers in Somalia. God, how challenging that must be. Lord, we don't, we don't have a concept of what it's like to be alone and isolated and outcast for our faith. So, Lord, we pray that your spirit would just be so close to those believers, Lord, that they would have just divine connection and interaction with you, that their hearts would be sustained, um, Lord, the way that you sustained Paul through all of his trials, and, and he learned the power of, of contentment um, despite his circumstances. Father, we pray this truth that we know you can give for the Somali Christians. Um, Lord, we pray that they would find favor with their neighbors. God, that you would use them to spread your gospel. You would use them to spread your name and the love of Jesus. Lord, and that those around them would start to see them in favor and they would have open doors to take your truth to the people in their communities, open doors to serve and love the people in their communities, Lord, and that that love would be what transforms the country of Somalia and they find freedom. Lord, we pray just that you would strengthen and empower and wrap your love and strength around the Christians who are already there in Somali doing the hard work. And Father, lastly, we just pray as a community, Lord, that you would convict our hearts God, that you would put it on our hearts, just the, the fire and the pressure um, of fulfilling the Great Commission, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts to be passionate about this issue. Um, God, and we pray specifically that here at Sojourn, you would create a path and a way for us to be part of taking the gospel to the people group of Somalia. Lord, whether that be through refugees who are here, we live in such a diverse community, Father, that you would allow pathways and connections even here in Atlanta and in Georgia and in our nation as a whole. Lord, for Sojourn to be part of what you're doing and taking the gospel to the Somalia people. People, Father, or if that means physically being there, Lord, whatever your will is for sojourn, God, we pray that you would reveal that to us. We pray that you would create those pathways, Lord, and that you would use us as an instrument of your hope and your peace and your truth for the people of Somalia. Um, Jesus, we love you and we thank you that we can do this and we can lift up unreached people groups to you. Um, and we pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Amen. Thank you guys for praying with me this morning. Amen. Thank you, Michaela. Appreciate it so much. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Awesome. All right, we're in Matthew 27. We're in a season of Lent. We're trying to slow down and behold the cross of Jesus. And so we're going to be doing that. Something took place 2,000 years ago that shaped the course of human history. And we want to behold that together. And I'd love to begin here. Uh, I, I've done a number of weddings, I've had the privilege to do uh, many, even some in this room, and uh, one of the benefits of being able to officiate a wedding is you kind of get a front row seat and things that are happening that maybe people don't see. I'm able to see the, the groom in a different way that people aren't able to see. I'm able to see the bride come out before anybody else is. I'm able to kind of be a part, see everyone watching, who are people watching, what's happening. And I think historically... Um, the way it, it kind of came about is everybody's kind of glued in, what's the bride going to look like? And so people are kind of anticipating, when is she going to show up? We're gonna, I'm going to be the first one to stand to make sure that I can see her before everybody else. And so there's kind of this anticipation around the bride. But I've, I've noticed this shift, and maybe you have too, over maybe the last 10 years. And it's that everybody now wants to see the groom. What's the groom going to do? 
How's the groom going to? So nobody's even looking at the bride anymore, even though this should be. Like, it's about the bride. But now everybody's just glued in to the groom. How is he going to respond? What's going to happen? Tons of pressure. I'm thankful that I got married before this 10-year window because I cry like twice a year and probably it's not going to happen on my wedding day. And, and then I'm freaking out that it looks like I don't love my wife. And then like, I tra- it just falls apart. And so there's something that's significant and beautiful about that is that we're able to see the, the longing in the, the groom's heart. We're able to see his care and his his affection for his bride. And so the cross does the same thing. The groom of heaven is put on display. You want to know how much the groom of heaven loves his bride. Man, look at the cross. And we're going to this morning. We're going to see the depth of his care and his love for her, how far he's willing to go to rescue her. These these six hours change the course of human history and display a sight of God that we would have never dreamed would have taken place. And so my invitation to us, I'm about to pray for us. I'm about to pray for me. My invitation is we blow the dust off of the cross. There's something significant and beautiful and profound and life-altering about the cross. And I want us to behold it together. Let's pray together. Father, we submit our hearts, our minds, our imaginations, our dullness, our cares, maybe some of even the stresses that brought us into this morning. We exhale, and we ask you'd help us to behold the groom this morning. Lord, we want to peer into your heart, the depth that you're willing to go, and I pray that you would move among us, Holy Spirit. Would you point Uh, Point Jesus, point us to Jesus this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 27, I'm going to read this whole chunk. Typically, we kind of read a a few verses and then talk about them. We're going to just read the whole thing, um, and then we're going to talk about it, Um, starting in verse 26. So Pilate has just released Jesus to be scourged, and here it is. Then he he released for them Barabbas, we talked about that last week, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's quarters, headquarters, and, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed on his right hand. And kneeling before him, they not mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. 
He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So a few things to mention before we get into the crucifixion. Uh, Maybe a little bit of a recap would be helpful. So we've, we've been journeying over the last couple of weeks, several weeks now, uh, over a few things that have happened. We've seen uh, Mary pour a year's worth of wage, all of her savings account, put into this ointment, this jar, this perfume, and she broke it and she poured it at the feet of Jesus, poured it onto his head. And we've mentioned that that fragrance is going to now carry him over these next couple of days. We, we then see a, a Passover meal, this, this great meal every year, this festival where the Israelites remember that God provided a lamb for their uh, rescue. And now at this meal, the night before Passover, there's no meal, there's no lamb at the table because Jesus is that lamb who's come to rescue the world. It goes on, and after that meal, they go into a garden. Jesus begins to pray. He begins to pour his heart out like we've never seen him pour his heart out. And he begins to say, Father, take this cup for me. He doesn't, he's not, he's, he may be scared about the crucifixion, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but he is much more scared about taking on this wrath that's going to be placed on him for your sin and mine, and that goes through the night, and we enter the next morning, and there's a betrayal that happens, and Jesus goes before Caiaphas, the high priest, and then Pilate, the Roman governor, and he's now been sentenced to be crucified. And so we see some of the story play out as we read through the mornings here. Pilate sends Jesus off to be crucified, and Jesus is mocked, and that's pretty normal for crucifixion. But it's extra, uh, there's extra mocking taking place because of the claims that Jesus has made. They're like, yeah, if you really are the Son of God, prove it. And they're mocking him as if, as if he's not who he said he was. So they stripped him. He's now naked. And then they put a robe upon him, a purple robe, to mock him as a, as a sign of uh, pseudo-royalty. They put a crown on his head to kind of depict uh, that he is a king, but it's not a normal crown. It has these thorns, and it goes deep into his skin, into his skull, and blood is now pouring down his face. They spit on him. They strike him. They then strip him again. He gets flogged, as it's mentioned. A a flogging or scourging was a baseline in the process of the crucifixion. It was a a whip with bone and metal and glass, and it uh, took out parts of their inner legs and their back, and and Jesus is beaten with that over and over again on his back and his legs. He's unrecognizable, and then he's led to the crucifixion, to be crucified. And briefly, we meet this guy named Simon of Cyrene, um, he's from this important city called Cyrene, and it's located in uh, northern Africa. And so he's got an African descent. And in Luke's gospel, it gives a little more clarity. He, he is actually seized. That's the language that, that Luke uses. He's not just requested, hey, would you mind carrying this cross? No, he's seized. He's grabbed from a Roman ruler or a Roman uh, soldier. And he says, carry this cross because Jesus is unable. He doesn't have the strength to carry this cross because of his flogging. They give him wine. You might ask why wine. It's a concoction that helps numb the pain. And so that's given, and Jesus spits it out once he realizes what it was. And so it's interesting to think about this as you enter in. Again, this is a real story in real time with real people 
real smells, real emotions. And you kind of got to wonder, like, who's there watching? Biblically, we know that there are some people there watching. We know that some of his closest friends are there. We know that his mom is there. They're, they're both all horrified at this moment as they watch. But you have to wonder, you know, blind Bartimaeus, who at one time had cried out for Jesus to have mercy on him because he couldn't see Maybe he's now with eyes to see watching this man be crucified. You've got to wonder if that young man, that paralytic who has dropped into that room where his friends take open the, the, the ceiling and he's dropped down and now he's able to walk. You wonder if he's there watching this happen. You wonder if the woman who had bled for 14 years and now has been healed, you wonder if she's there Watching, You wonder if the woman who was caught in adultery and thrown at the feet of Jesus. And he told those, if you don't have any, uh, you who don't have sin can be the first one to throw a stone. And they all leave. And Jesus has this conversation with her. You wonder if she's there watching. Again, a real moment happening here. The verse I want to focus on is in verse 35. And it says this, and when they had crucified him. Or another translation says, and they crucified him. There's no way of proving this, but I would call this top five material in the most pregnant verses in the entire Bible. And they crucified him. Maybe others that can get in the top five list, just sidebar for a second. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'd say that makes the top five. Uh, John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We can throw that in the top five. Romans 5.1, and we have been justified by faith and therefore have peace with God. We can throw that in the top five. Revelation 20, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We can throw that in the top five. But this one might even be at the top. And they crucified him. These four words are referencing the six-hour period that changed the course of human History And they crucified him. The culmination here of God's care for his creation and the effects of their rebellion, these image bearers, that God has written himself now into our story to pay for the penalty of our sin, to destroy Satan and his schemes, and to redeem his prized creation. You know, we just get these four words, and they crucified him, likely because it's so humiliating at what it's referencing. We had so much detail about, it wasn't just a robe, but a purple robe that was put upon him. We get not just a a crown, but a crown of thorns. There's detail there that he was blindfolded and spat upon and slapped in the face, asked to prophesy. We get all of these details, but all we get here is, and they crucified him. There's this silence Thankfully, we know because of history a good bit about the Roman crucifixion. You know, just as people look at the groom and and wonder how much does he care about his bride, so again here we see the depth of love that God would demonstrate for us. So when we approach or consider the cross, um, sometimes we approach it with a, a lack of an accurate understanding of it. Um, We can mute the impact of the cross and what it's designed to have upon us. In the Western world, the cross is kind of a fashion statement now. Some of you might have tattoos of the cross, which is totally fine. Uh, We might have shirts that have a cross on it or earrings we might wear or a necklace that we might have with a cross on it. But to a first century Jew, 
to a first century person, this is barbaric. This is barbaric. It's even more extreme than someone wearing uh, an electric chair on their neck. Like, that would be crazy, right? Like, but that's even worse to consider. I'm not judging if you're wearing a cross. That's not my point here. The point is that we've muted the, the, the barbaric nature of the crucifixion. I want to break down these four words. And they crucified him. They crucified. The Romans perfected this death penalty. This is what it was. It was a death penalty that took place up until Constantine's uh, uh, rulership. He abolished it uh, in the fourth century. It was a harsh and often it was inflicted upon lower class people. It can only be compared to the popular entertainment of throwing victims to the wild beasts. Like that, that's the type of nature that we're seeing uh, in this. It was horrific. It was shameful. It was an act of terror. It was designed to point to the fact, do not try to buck against the Roman rulership or this will be the effect. Every time someone saw someone hanging on a cross and all of its gruesomeness, it was a reminder of the power of Rome. Don't mess with Rome. A couple quotes that might be helpful. John Stott, uh, he said, it is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. Uh, Cicero, who is uh, a Roman ruler in the first century uh, or early uh, around that time, he said, a most cruel and disgusting punishment. And lastly, another quote, Kathleen Schreier, who's a professor of biology from Azuna Pacific University, she said, the collapsing lungs and failing heart uh, dehydration and the inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues essentially suffocate the victim. The decreased o- oxygen also damages the heart itself, and you can read that thing later, which leads to cardiac. I know, I know that in these moments, I just, uh, I'm distracted. I want to stay focused here. Um, but yeah, I bypassed that on purpose, which leads to a cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac stress, the heart can even burst a process known as a cardiac rupture. Jesus most likely died of a heart attack. Behold, heaven's groom. And they crucified him. Again, we can just glaze over it, but it is one of the most pregnant verses in the Bible. Him, God. And they crucified God. Emmanuel. The gospel writer John says, um, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. In the beginning was the word. And then in verse 14, I already mentioned earlier, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The creator became the creation. Paul, he references Jesus in Colossians 1, among many other places, and he says, he is the image of the invisible God. The Hebrew writer says that he is the exact imprint of his nature. Call it what it is, but it's this, after crucifying God. Friends, never forget that the center of the gospel is the news of God being crucified to rescue the world, specifically you, to make you his own. 
Never forget that the centerpiece of the news of the gospel is that God is crucified to rescue you and to rescue this world. God hung naked, bloody, bearing his own wrath in our place. That's what we see here. This is the picture of the groom of heaven and the depth of love he would go to bring redemption. So why? Why like this? Why like this? A few things to consider. First, he did it for the pardon of our sin. In this postmodern, secular world, sin is uncomfortable, but it is the, the baseline understanding of humanity. Sin is uncomfortable, but it is why God came on a rescue mission. He is the hero. Every Marvel comic hero at some point um, becomes unhelpful because it's only a fictional story. But God, as the rescuer and the great hero, wrote himself into our story in real time to rescue us. If we mute sin, then we mute the cross. And if we mute the cross, we mute God's great love for us. Isaiah 53, which was already referenced at the beginning of our gathering, says this, starting in verse 6. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities or our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. He has dealt with our sin. That's why we can say we are forgiven. It's not just this ethereal ideal. No, in real time, God took the worst of you and he placed it upon Jesus and he dealt with it. He bore our sin. It says that by his stripes that we are healed. Another way to translate healed would be to be restored or to be cured. By his stripes we are restored. We are cured. He is the slain Passover lamb that came for us in our place. And so a few considerations for the pardon of our sin. Secondly, to display his Love. I heard someone say once before that divine justice and divine love kissed in these six hours. The fullness of God's justice took place and was dealt with on the cross. And the fullness of God's love was displayed upon the cross. God's love is defined here. You want to know how much God loves you? Look here. And God's justice is vindicated here. This six-hour event changed the course of human history, and nothing was able to, uh, nothing was able to, uh, what am I trying to say here, to do anything to him apart from his, uh, that, that's really, I, that was a bad sentence in there, let me just try to recap what I'm trying to say in my notes there, um, that there was nothing that was able to stop God from accomplishing this. He brought it a pass. It wasn't the Romans that led him, he was in charge, and he was the lamb who came to Show us his great love through the cross. The justice that is now due us is love. The justice that we now deserve, 
because of the cross, is love. Ephesians 3, it speaks to this. And this is not trite. Again, we are looking at the groom as he looks at his bride upon the cross. And in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul has this prayer that's so significant. It says this. He prays for the church in Ephesus. He says, so Christ So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded, concrete in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He prays for them to know a love that they're not going to be able to comprehend. To know a love that surpasses knowledge. He says, I want you to know the height and width and length and depth that's displayed here upon the cross. God literally entered into our story and died our death, taking on our condemnation so that we could go free. We experience the depth of God's love here. And then third, and there's more things to be said, but for time, just three to crush Satan and his schemes. And right after the fall in Genesis uh, 3, right after the deception of Adam and Eve, and what seems to be Satan receiving the keys of the world, God makes a promise. And the promise is this in Genesis 3.15. He speaks directly to the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. Another translation would be crush. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15, at the very beginning of this story, there is a promise that God would bring forth one from this woman who would crush the serpent. And that is happening here at the cross. The serpent is now crushed. Man, you can say hallelujah there. That's a good moment for that one. It doesn't look like victory here, but he's taking back the keys of Satan. He's taking the keys for himself. In Revelation 1, 17 and 18, again, it's too good to not uh, mention this. John, just recap, uh, John has been put upon this island. Uh, He's in prison on this island called Patmos, and Jesus shows up to him at the very end of his life to give him a a vision of what is to come. And Jesus shows up to him in verse 17 of Revelation 1 and says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is John talking. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the... I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Man, Satan and his schemes have been crushed. Lastly, Colossians 2, 14. I'm not too bothered by reading some verses to you guys. Uh, Colossians 2, 14 and 15, it says... uh, Paul's talking about the cross. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this, it, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. This is Satan and his rulership. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
Satan and his schemes have been crushed. He is at work to crush the work of Satan and restore the cosmos to his intended design. And this is the moment that we have as, as everyone, uh, as we have the opportunity to stare at the groom and say, how much do you care for your bride? How far would you go to rescue her? We see it here. And Sojourn family, this is our message. This is our message now and forevermore through all eternity, we will contemplate the killing of the Son of God and sing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. This message is not going anywhere. For all eternity, we will declare the depth and the beauty of the message of, and they crucified him. This is our glue. Our glue, again, is not political allegiances. Our glue is not policy preferences. Our glue is not nationalism. We can have values that play out differently within policies, but our glue is the foolish scandal that God was humiliated for our sin in our place to rescue and redeem the world, and they crucified him. This is our access point. This is the provision that God has given to the world as he gave the provision of the Passover lamb and said, if you have the blood over the doorpost, this is what he's offered to the world. If you trust in my son and see the depth of my love for you, you will be pardoned now and forevermore and you will have peace with God. This is our glue, this is our access point, and this is our message. Our primary allegiance is Christ. Christ is and I'm crucified. We're all on the same level playing field. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter how broken your past was. Or if you were baptized when you got out of the womb. Like regardless of where you are, you and I alike are in need of a rescuer. And he alone is our hero. God has so loved the world. He has so dim- uh, displayed his care for us. He was crucified so that we could be adopted part of his redemptive family. So just like we look at the groom at a wedding, we're looking directly at the groom of heaven. How much do you love your bride? How far would you go to rescue her? You know, I won't let us stiff arm the cross with theological jargon. We can have the temptation to do that, but I want it to be personal and beautiful for us. In Romans 5, 8, it says that God demonstrated his love for us that he, while we are yet sinners, he died. And another translation says that God proved his love for us. See, these are the links God went for the world. And these are the links that God specifically went to rescue you. This is why Paul closes the eighth chapter of Romans. After talking at length about suffering, it's very interesting. You read Romans 8 and the first part of it is about the difficulty of this life and the suffering that will occur. And suffering, it will occur. If it hasn't, to you it will. And what does he say after talking about suffering? He says this in verse 37. He says, not, uh, he says no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then this phrase, for I am sure. And there's nothing more concrete than what he's about to say. I am sure that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can know that he will not forsake you. It doesn't matter how dark it is for you. We talked about suicide some last week. It doesn't matter how dark and painful and scary life can get. I am sure that in light of this moment, this six-hour act that displayed to the world the depth of his love, I am sure that nothing can separate his love, that we will not be forsaken. You will spend all of your life, and I will spend all of my life, looking for this kind of security and this kind of love. And I tell you, it is before you. You don't have to continue to look. You can rest in it. There's nothing as sure as his love. Your job is not secure. Your career is not secure. Your future is not secure. Your family is not secure. Your health is not secure. Our country is not secure. The credibility of the dollar is not secure. But one thing is secure. I am sure that nothing in light of this declaration can separate us from the love of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.